Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. Do you like scary movies? Well, if you do, stay tuned because on this show, we're going to talk with Ryan Spindell about his latest film. It's the horror anthology, The Mortuary Collection. And it's a good one. So lock the door, turn out the lights, and stay tuned. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Is it true that you grew up in a crumbling haunted house? That is true. If you believe in that, that sort of thing, yes, that is true. My parents, so my parents are doctors and... Um, there was this like there was a need of for doctors in like various parts of the country back in the sort of 70s 80s and um this scholarship which i thought was really cool which was basically um the government would pay for you to go to medical school and give you a really healthy stipend and in exchange whenever you graduate you have to go to a place of need and set up a practice and work there for x amount of years so like three years or something like that so basically what my parents did is after getting that scholarship um, we lived in a very, when I was born, I was born in a very cool city called Portland, Maine, which is like a hip up and coming, uh, you know, the East Coast's uh, answer to Portland, Oregon, I guess, but much smaller. Stephen um, but King. Then Stephen King yep. is, it lives nearby there. Um, and then we, um, but we ended up relocating to this tiny, uh, foggy little um, coastal town called Jonesport, Maine, that's uh, way in the northeastern coast. And the, a bit of trivia that my stepdad likes to talk about is it's um, you have to drive over an hour to see the closest stoplight. So it's not just a, a small town near bigger towns. It's a small town near woods and ocean. So it's, it's very remote. And the house that we moved into was this old Victorian house that was in the middle of town where the, where the last doctor had, had lived previously and he'd had his practice there. And when my parents were touring the house, they went down into the basement, had one of those big dirt floor stone basements. Uh, in the back of the of the basement, there was a heavy wooden door. And on the other side of that wooden door, there was a dentist chair that had straps attached to it, like to tie someone down. And there was like 30 fetuses in jars. I told you to there. sit still. <laughs> exactly. So, so I, my mom's big thing was like, you need to get rid of these fetuses before we move into this house. And so... We, we moved in and somebody had relocated them. I'm not sure what happened to them. Um, but from then on out, uh, the, the big rumor was that the house was haunted by um, little spirits of, of lost children. Your film got a, what is it, a 95 on Rotten Tomatoes. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's so cool, huh? I'm really, really excited about that. I love the anthology horror genre. Your film is creepy, but it's in some way it has a little bit of a sense of humor. And... It reminds me of the classic films like Tales from the Crypt and also Sam Raimi called the film a trusted tapestry of grisly fun and endlessly inventive terror. Yeah, which was incredible. I, that's like that's like a, one of those like I can die now moments uh, when that happened because uh, he is, you know, like everybody um, who's working in the space, he is like one of the he's the godfather and he is. His movies, in particular, uh, Evil Dead 2, were one of the movies that sort of led me into the horror space to begin with. And so for it to come full circle with having my, my first movie with a sort of raving review from Sam Raimi is, is surreal, to say the least. Do you think you'll be invited in to join the Masters of Horror? Would that be a, is uh, that a goal? Yeah. Do you think you'll be invited one day? I, no. 
do, do, do you aspire to that? I guess. Who doesn't? I mean, how cool is that to sit in a room with all these amazing filmmakers and, and eat a dinner? I'd probably be overwhelmed and terrified to be in that situation. I, I have no problem talking to strangers, but I think sort of iconic filmmakers that sort of have been the foundation of everything I do. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I did meet Sam. The first time I met Sam was at a, at a film premiere. A friend of mine knew him, introduced me to him, and he was the nicest, most engaging guy. And I was a total wreck. Like I just, I reverted back to like 12 year old me. I just was like nodding. I don't know what I said. It, it was terrible. I, I later, I later met him proper, but, but the first time was, was pretty, uh, pretty rough. So I'm not sure how I would fare in a room full of visionaries like that. Well, you worked on him with uh, 50 States of Horror. You did a mm-hmm. project for him on that. Uh-huh. And that was awesome. That, yeah. That's when I met him proper. And, and, and I actually was able to like make complete sentences. I'd, I'd had a couple of drinks too. So that helped. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hold on a second. Let me have a couple of drinks right now. Maybe I'll help talk to you. Well, I was reading that you do not like to write about yourself, but do you have a? Do you, is this uncomfortable to um, talk about yourself this way, or it's a little easier when somebody is asking you questions? Uh, I mean, yes. I in particular do not like to write about myself, but I, I don't. It's easy to talk about yourself when the things you're talking about are the people that inspired you to make art. I mean, that, that doesn't feel like it's about me. That's just me saying like, oh, I'm just a vessel, but these are where the, where the, the ideas originally came from. Um, so I, I, I'm okay. I, I, we'll see, we'll see how deep you cut. Maybe, 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 maybe you'll get me to freeze up. Oh, see, this is what I'm doing right now. This is like, let's build rapport, throw, uh-huh. lob a couple <laughs> of compliments at the director and then go right for the juggler. Oh, great. Great. Cool. No, that's great. <laughs> that's a good, good, Practice. I like the way you uh, you repurposed a babysitter, uh, the babysitter murderies into this uh, into this film. It's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You got some recognition from that short film too, didn't you? I did. Well, interestingly, I so my initially I wrote the feature as a full feature of short stories, um, and so th- it was all conceived as one whole first, which helps down the road. Um, and what I did was because I'd never made a feature film before and because getting the money for a film like this is next to impossible anyway, um, I decided to do a Kickstarter and raise some money and make the first, make one of the shorts as a proof of concept. And so that's kind of how the Babysitter Murders was born. So it was always intended to be a part of some of a bigger whole. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it, that, that movie sort of opened a lot of doors for me. Um, it didn't necessarily... You know, there wasn't an influx of, of, of financing and people that wanted to make the feature. That was still a crazy uphill battle. But what it did give me was this sort of little piece to show potential collaborators to get them excited about coming on the project. So I was able to work with, you know, Clancy Brown or uh, a big special effects company like ADI. I was kind of able to get in through the door to kind of squeeze in through the crack by showing them the short and showing them what it was going to be. Um, which is something that I probably wouldn't have been able to do had I been just, you know, a struggling filmmaker trying to scrap together my first feature. The film looks great. It, it really looks good. And plus the cast. Is, it's, it's, it's very good. They're wonderful. Um, yeah, I got really lucky. Yeah. No, but I think that it's, it's all your hard work. It really paid off. It's a, I thought it was a smartly, smartly made film. I mean, uh, a lot of horror films come out and, you know, they're just kind of a rehashed, 
rehashed uh, rehashed fair, but I just think um, having your actors, strong actors in the film, and the aesthetic of the movie really kept me kept me glued, and also the story ideas. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> turning turning the tables on the frat boys. I love that one. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a tricky one, too, because uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say that the, the initial conceit for the film was to sort of be a bit of an homage to the anthology films that I grew up with, like Creepshow and, and the Tales from the Crypt series and the, the original Twilight Zone, which is sort of like always the, the, the biggest influence on any of my work. Um, and, and I think the initial script was a pretty basic tongue-in-cheek, uh, fun, funny horror romp. Um, but then as we sort of got into the process of like realistically making it, um, it, it, we, it went from like, okay, well, well, these are the base ideas. This is the base way it could play out. Now, how can we do something more interesting or how can we subvert expectation to some degree? And a big part of that came from thinking about the characters in the movie and not, not treating them like cartoons, but treating them like real people and then sort of building that that concept up with the, the performers. So there's something a little bit more real, something a little bit more to, to sort of grapple onto. Because I, I do think that that is a, a real, one of the strong points of the original Twilight Zone series. And one of the potential weak points of the Tales from the Crypt series, which is I think Tales from the Crypt um, became so tongue in cheek that it sort of forgot that like there were real people existing in the stories. And you, you kind of just wait to see them get their comeuppance, but you don't really have any connection to them. So you know, big aspirations, sure, but, but trying to find a way, even within the context of some of these deplorable characters like Jake from the, the story you're talking about, knowing where it's going to go, know, knowing how bad it's going to get for him, but still trying to find just like a, a grain of humanity for the character um, to so, sort of give the audience just something a, a little bit more spice, you know, whether it succeeds or fails, I guess that's up to them. But But I remember that was a big intention for us. You talked about um, the financing, this type of film is a hard sell, but in some ways, these films, isn't it easier to raise money when it's a horror film? Um, I don't think so. I, no. I, I, is it that we've peaked out? Because I know that there was a time when you had the, the Saw series coming out and mm-hmm. all these other kind of horror films. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be like the, the mid-90s when they had like mm-hmm. the slasher porn and torture mm-hmm. porn and all that stuff. Which mm-hmm. your film is nowhere, your film is not like that. Your film is, doesn't go for that cruel. It's not really a, the cruelty aspect of the Saw series. Right, right, which was which was very much in, intentional because I, I I'm not particularly fond of of the cruel uh, horror just for for gratuitous sake. Um, I don't know. I, I think that's an interesting question about whether or not horror is cheap anymore. I mean, I know that it, it used to be cheap and easy because you you don't need big name actors and big name actors cost a lot of money, especially when you not within our realm, but as you rise up a little bit, big name actors can be a huge portion of your of your budget. Um, so I guess in that regard, we you don't. It's cheaper to make horror, but I mean, with something like the Mortuary Collection, there's there's five stories, and each story has something incredibly difficult and complicated to pull off um, that requires a very special type of artist, like a, a prosthetic makeup artist, or a certain visual effect, or just some stunt performances and babysitter murders. And those kind of things are are really expensive. And and honestly, I think that horror, 
from where I'm standing, horror is so much more expensive than I, I, I look at people whose passion is uh, a bunch of 30 somethings in a cabin talking about life. And I imagine how, how what a dream that would be to put something like that, like that together, because I just have to cast some great actors and put them in a, in a Airbnb for a weekend. Um, whereas a horror and especially something like the Mortuary Collection, which is a, a period piece of sorts with costumes and hair and makeup and vintage cars and very specific locations. Um, and every location that we found, we had to totally transform because those locations just don't exist in reality. So, so in our case, it was uh, the op. It was as far from being an easy, uh, cheap thing as possible, um, especially with very little money, which we actually had very little money, which is why we ended up kind of shooting it piece by piece over the course of several years. What was your biggest challenge besides the money? The biggest challenge was was easily just trying to balance five stories at one time. I, I, I wouldn't suggest any first time filmmaker make five movies at once. I would suggest finding one story with one set of characters and one location and really like telling that story and not trying to sort of spread yourself so thin because of course, logistically it's tough when you have to find new locations, new actors, new set pieces, new everything, but like emotionally and, and creatively trying to keep your brain wrapped around five different stories and and how these stories are progressing and how the performances are progressing. And if you decide to change something with your actor, you have to like clock that because that could pay off five days later when you're shooting something totally different, you have to remember. So um, that sort of challenge, had I known how complicated that would have been, I probably wouldn't have made the movie, but um, but I'm glad I did because it was, it was such a learning experience. And now I'm really excited to make one story, just one. <laughs> Will you stick with horror? Are you going to do, I mean, I see in your, in your bio, you've worked on documentaries and um, what is it about the horror genre that you're passionate about? And are you going to stick with it? Because the last couple of things have been, been in that space. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm proud to be in the horror genre. I, I'm, I'm glad that it's getting its, its due after all of this time. I feel like it, even when I was in film school, I remember being a horror filmmaker. It was like kind of a joke. My, some of my classmates would sort of joke about how I was like making garbage while they were making art, um, which is interesting because I do feel that the horror genre, um, in my opinion, is the most cinematic and artistic of all the genres. I think it's the genre you're allowed to play the most with color and sound and visuals and the audience isn't taken out by it. They, they actually embrace it and they sort of look for it. And I know as somebody who my background is art and design, I'm a very hands-on person. I like to build things and paint things and I like stuff I can touch. And um, filmmaking allows me to have sort of my hands in all of those pies, but horror in particular, like really, really lets me play. And, and for the time being, I, I'm, I'm interested in exploring it uh, a lot further than I have now. When you're making a film like this one, when do you know it's time to reveal the button of the movie? Because if you give it too soon, mm. you know, it's, it's like, you know, peeling back these layers. When do, you, when do you know that it's time? Because there's a specific arc to this film. Sure. And there's a, a specific gotcha at the very end, which we won't talk about. Sure. Um, but when do you know? When, it, when is it time to reveal these things to keep us in that sense of suspense? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's story dependent, really. I mean, there's, you know, the baseline is, you know, near the end, right? The thing that you're building towards the whole, the whole way through. 
what's interesting about this movie is it has several endings because it's a, a story with stories within it and, and stories within that in some cases. Um, so um, I guess it's sort of calibrating not just what you want to do with each story, but also what you what do you think the audience wants and then kind of trying to like me and my producer, Justin, spent so hours and hours and hours just talking about each moment of the movie and what fans will expect and how we can do something different. Because that was the idea all the way through, always push them in one direction, pull the rug out from under them, pull the rug again. And so doing that within the individual story. So there's that satisfying aha moment at the end, but then how do you top all of the stories with the wraparound in a way that sort of this, the wraparound becomes the story? That was the biggest challenge of this one. Uh, and the thing that, you know, took us a long time to finally figure out. You know, you, we've talked about Tales from the Crypt and your central character is actually the Crypt Keeper. Basically, yeah. But he's a real person. He's not a, he's not a caricature. It, it, well, exactly. I mean, I, th that was the question that sort of popped up as I was thinking about this is that we we always we know this host character well we've seen him or her um in many sort of since in, uh, sorry in many sort of um instances and you know we show up and they're always there and they put on a good show and they tell a story and they deliver the goods but then i was thinking like what does this storyteller person do when the doors are closed like are they sad are they lonely um, do they like telling stories or are they being forced to tell the stories by some sort of higher power? And those questions, I think, sort of helped opened up who Montgomery was or could be. Uh, and then we did a lot of work, just Clancy and I talking about um, who who he was as a person beyond his sort of ghoulish facade. In some ways, he reminds me of the, um, the cemetery guy from uh, Phantasm. Oh, yeah. Angus Grimm. <laughs> yeah, we get that a lot. His, we had an original, before Clancy came on board, we had artwork done. And I remember the artwork, the direction that I'd gone with the artwork was it's like, he was like part Angus Scrim from the Phantasm movies and then part the Preacher from Poltergeist 2. And he was like a fusion of both. So I remember he was very tall and very thin and kind of insect-like. Um, and... Uh, so Clancy Brown kind of came in to the movie with this idea of this of, of who the character was just based on visuals alone. And then of course he brought his Clancy Brownness to it in, in the best way. And I remember with casting him, my big thing was not just somebody who aesthetically looks the part, because whatever, that's that's easy. But who well, it's not easy to find a giant looming figure, but you know, relatively. Um, but the tricky part was like, who's someone that can bring some humanity to this character, even though everything he's doing is is pretty ridiculous and over the top. And I've been a fan of Clancy forever. And I just knew that he, no matter what role he plays, he, he's always a, a side character, but he's always the most colorful, most interesting person in every movie he's in. And he always brings humanity to even some of the most vile villains to be on screen. Uh, and so it was an easy choice to go for him. And it was just, you know, knock on wood, lucky that he, uh, he said yes. Okay, most probably the most important question. Have you called him about getting the teeth back? Um, I talked to Clancy quite a bit, actually. Um, and and what, is it, what is it about the teeth from the film that he wanted to keep? 
I think the teeth were a big, were a huge component prior, like when I first wrote the script, I remember writing the character for the first time and I kind of gave him sort of this generic uh, description, like, you know, tall, pale, um, things you'd imagine. But I remember I had a very specific idea of the teeth and, and the idea was that um, his, teeth, his teeth were thin like piano keys and there was way too many. Um, and so what you ended up getting like with that sort of conceit is that from a distance when he smiles, it just looks like he has normal teeth, but you have to look really, but there's something about it that's off-putting and you can't tell what it is. And you really have to look closely and think about it before you go, hey, people aren't supposed to have that many teeth. And it added this really interesting component to the character because as human beings, we smile to put people at ease, but whenever Clancy would smile, uh, it was une- it would it would create unease. And it was such an interesting component for him because he smi- he rarely smiles in the movie, but when he does smile, things seem worse. Um, and the teeth were so good. They were created by ADI and they were so good that initially Clancy had a lot more prosthetics. He was, he was almost, I wouldn't say cartoonish, but he was almost much more ghoulish and more heightened. Um, and the teeth were so good. And Clancy's real face is so good that I ended up stripping away a good, a good majority of the prosthetics and just sticking with the bald cap and the teeth. And that alone kind of did the trick and allowed Clancy to still be Clancy, which was important. I don't think I even knew he took the teeth until we were doing an interview together and he pulled them out. I have to go back and look at that. I have to go back and, and look at his teeth now. Um, and and th- that's the thing, is when you put something into a film, it's there for a reason, but does it resonate with an audience more in a, like a super conscious way? Mm-hmm. And then they, they kind of get it because they see it. And, and maybe, maybe they don't say, oh, unless they really stop and look at the frame and go, oh, look at all his teeth. So I, I, th- I think what you're talking about in my opinion, is is the general fundamentals for filmmaking as a whole, which is, um, I'm a very detail-oriented, um, probably pain-in-the-ass filmmaker for some people, depending on who you are, um, because I do care about every little detail. And the thing is, is you can be on set, you know, and you're you're adjusting a lamp in the background, and somebody's like, we got to go. Who cares about the lamp? Like, the lamp's the lamp. Just let's shoot. It doesn't matter. Um, but I would argue it does matter. I think that those little details that are important to you, while people might not watch the movie and think that lamp's in the wrong place, there's, when the ramp, lamp is in the right place and then something else is in the right place and then the teeth are right, like those little bits add up to something greater that I don't think can be quantified. And I think is the thing that becomes missing a lot with newer filmmakers who either don't have the experience or the time to actually get those things right and they're just sort of pushed through. And then your creative voice doesn't sort of come through in the end product. So I think, things like the teeth and what you're talking about are, are, are vital for filmmakers to sort of pay attention to because I think that is the lifeblood of, of any film. Why are horror films so popular? Uh, I mean, it, there's so many different answers to this question. And I think why horror is, the, is something that anybody who works in the space is kind of grappling with personally all the time. Um, for me, I think horror is like a roller coaster it it gives you an opportunity to experience um, emotions and and feelings that we don't get to experience on a on a day-to-day level Um, and I think that in a way it sort of reminds us a little bit of being children when 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 we were able to experience life 
in a more pure, simple way. And we weren't so, so bogged down by the pressures of, of being an adult and society and all the things we're supposed to be doing. And I think horror kind of opens that up in a way and, and helps us relive that feeling uh, in a way that, that we don't really get anywhere else. And I think that's a big part of it for me. I was, I was talking to a, to a friend and he was saying like, oh, I, I just miss feeling the sense of wonder. I haven't felt that sense since I was a kid and it's, it depresses me. And I was like, oh, it's so weird because as somebody who makes horror, I experience it all the time because every, every day I sit down to write and I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in those positions and experiencing these like worlds I'm trying to put together. And, and I, I think a little piece of that comes through for an audience and, and especially in times like this when it's rough and the political climate and the health climate and just everything, it, it seems to be falling apart. I think it's nice for people to have some sort of valve. I remember interviewing Eli Roth for Hostel 2, and um, he said it was a date movie. <laughs> That's what he described. He's a master pitchman, that guy. Yeah, um, he really is. <laughs> is horror, is horror um, you think it's a good date movie, horror movies, especially a movie like that. Have you seen? Of course. Hostel yeah, 2, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, here's why I'll say horror is good for dates because I'm only interested in dating girls who enjoy horror movies. And so I can get a, a good calibration right away if they refuse to see horror. I'm like, well, this isn't gonna work, obviously, because it's all I do and, and almost all I watch. Um, so, so in that regard, yes, I do think it's good. I don't know if I've ever experienced the like, the physical like bonus of like watching a scary movie in a theater with a, with a a date? I, I don't think I've ever I've ever been in that position, but I guess it works for Eli Roth. How would you like to be remembered as a filmmaker? When we look, so now we're in the future, 100 mm-hmm. years, 80 years. How would you like to be remembered? Oh, man, that is it. You, you were right. You, you did go right for the jugular. Um, gosh, I would, you know what? I would, I would settle for just being remembered at all. <laughs> that makes any sense one of my biggest fears is is wasting uh wasting whatever talent i have by not doing enough or or creating enough or or adding enough to the to the world as a whole um as a a filmmaker and as a person so i i guess i'm more concerned with what i'm doing right now than how i'll be remembered i i i I don't know that's a that's a that's a deep question now you're going to send me in a a spiral that's going to last the entire weekend what are the three most important elements of making a movie? Ooh, that's a pretty good question. Um, I would say your your team, for sure, um, above all else. Uh, not just not just surrounding yourself with with creative artists who who really know what they're doing, but but surrounding yourself with people that can support your vision and that are just kind people because. Um, you have to spend so much time with these people uh, and you, you, you're, you're sort of run through the ringer and you see everybody at their best and their worst. And um, at the end of the day, you realize that what's the point of constantly going through this thing if you have to go through it with people that, that don't respect you or, or just aren't good people. So surrounding yourself with good people first and foremost I think would be the number one thing. And, and the secondary would be if they're actually good at their jobs. That's, that's, a, that's a, a, a two for one. Uh, coming back to, to, to the details, I think 
um, your job as a director in particular is to have an understanding of everything that's going on on your set and within the story of your movie and the world that you're building. And I think um, paying extra attention to that sort of thing, that, that's what I look for in other filmmakers and, and people that I really respect is um, I, I don't really care about the, the budget or the actors or or how much equipment they had. I care about the, the details that the, the directors are sort of weaving in and out to, to tell a story in their own specific way, which I guess would bring me to, to the third would probably be just having a voice, like a specific voice that is your voice. And, and we all start out mimicking the people we love, that's natural, but evolving from that into, into something unique and personal because I think nowadays making a feature film is not a, a tough thing to do and a lot of people are making them and I think the waters are really muddy um, with films that are made quickly uh, without a lot of thought and it's hard to to be noticed in that in this landscape and the only way to be really noticed is to make something that's really unique and personal to you and then people might not jump up and sort of celebrate you on the first one but if you do it again and if you do it again and if, if you're true to yourself people will start to notice and, and, and fans will start to sort of gravitate towards you. And, and that's the sort of thing that'll sort of keep you going and evolving as an artist. So many people, especially in Los Angeles, you know, the streets are littered with the, with the brokenhearted filmmakers that never got their projects off the ground for whatever reason. Totally. What is it about you? What was that quality? What is that quality that you have? That was it was enabled to do to write and direct this film, and not just write and direct it, but to get it distributed and all that stuff. I mean, you're cutting deep again, but I I, I don't I, I think there's a bit of an insanity to um, following this career path. I don't think it there's a really any way to explain it because it's just somewhere between obsession and passion uh, and the two the, the line between those two I think is very thin um, and uh, I, I, every project that I've well most of the projects I've done have have really crushed my soul in one way or another and it surprises me how I keep bouncing back because I've had moments where I'm like I just can't anymore this is too hard but I can't imagine not doing it if that makes sense so it, even if I wasn't making money at all, which I really am not, I feel like I'll continue to do it because it just feels like, I guess I don't know what else I would do. I, I don't know if that's the right answer though, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to the, to the art form in ways that I can't quite explain and, and ways that people around me who aren't in the industry don't understand as well. So that's a, a constant challenge. It was described once that, that Hollywood was sort of, um, a film career was like one door and the line for, to get in this door was like endless. And eventually everyone in the line sort of realizes that this is a ridiculous thing to do to stand in this endless line just to go through this one door and they all walk away. And the only person crazy enough to sort of wait it out through all of that is the filmmaker who like finally steps through that door. So it, it's a little bit of that, if that makes sense. Can you share one of those challenging experiences and how you found the way to carry on, to not give up? Yeah, I can. I can. Um, so on the Mortuary Collection in particular, there was a, um, 
you know, we, we shot that as, as multiple shoots and uh, sort of of various sizes. Our, our biggest our biggest version was very small, and then our smallest version was, you know, me, my cinematographer, or just me and my producer actually have shot some scenes in the movie, just the two of us. But I know that the one part of the production was uh, was incredibly tough. We were shooting in Astoria, Oregon. It was raining. Uh, we didn't have enough money. We didn't have enough time. And it just felt like everything was going wrong, which is pretty standard issue for any filmmaking sort of endeavor. Everything feels like it's going wrong. And I remember one component that we really had to shoot was this opening sequence where the little boy rides his bike through the town. And every day we, we had sort of a slot plan to go shoot some of that stuff, but we kept pushing it away because I was like, well, I'm not going to take a crew of 35 people and have them stand around while I'm while like well a little boy just rides by on the bike. I I need I need to use this crew for to shoot the, the meat and potatoes of the movie. And so we kept pushing it back, pushing it back, pushing it back until we just it was like not on the schedule at all. So, you know, that we we finished rap we wrapped and I was just kind of like totally destroyed as you are. And um, I was like, look, my friend's son is about the same size as the actor and I have the costume and the bike. I want to come back tomorrow, like after the shoot, we had a weekend off. I want to go back to Astoria and I'm just going to try to shoot some shots of him riding the bike because we were unable to get it. Uh, so my producer and my cinematographer came with me as well and our art director and the four of us went back to Astoria with just my friend's son on a bike. And we shot all of that opening content, just the four of us, no crew breathing down your neck, no trucks, no bathrooms being set up and where's everyone going to park and screaming, yelling, just the four of us in Astoria, Oregon, with a little boy on a bike. And it was such an incredible experience. Some of the shots are some of my favorite in the movie. Um, and it was a little bit of a reminder as to why I was doing it to begin with, just the pure creativity and the working with good people and the, and the making making cool stuff. And I, I needed that at the end of, of what was a, an otherwise sort of tough shoot, to say the least. Um, and, and I feel like filmmaking does that to you. It beats you down and it beats you to the brink and then it gives you a little win. And that little win is just enough to go, all right, I'm back. Let's do it again. <laughs> well, in watching that opening scene, it seems as if it shot through the lens of Steven Spielberg. Too kind. But because, I'll take it. No, it, because it, it's like, it seems as if the, the mood of the film it's not an, this. Oh, this isn't going to be this oppressive horror film, right? There's no foreshadowing, really. Right, right, right. And and so you see this kid rides up, and but it's just kind of the way it was. It's a little lyrical the way you see the the door and the closed or open sign, and that kind of follows through the film, even though some gruesome and grisly things happen. Mm-hmm. But it just has that that moment where we're not constantly on edge. Yeah, and it's it's kind of setting. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it sets a tone. The conceit, and and whether it succeeds or fails, again, I guess that's up to the the audience. But the conceit was that there's sort of an evolution of tone, and and, and horror as the movie goes on, and the opening very much is that Spielbergy goosebumps horror Guillermo del Toro inspired horror fantasy. The the sleepy little town and the, the creepy things crawling in the corners. And, and there's a fun factor to it. And the idea is that the, the shorts sort of evolve as you go and they become a little bit more 
um, complicated and the, the morality becomes a little bit more gray and the, the, the way they're, they're created and sort of executed becomes a little bit more um, uh, contemporary, I guess would be the, would be the thing. Um, and, and that's all intentional. And I, I've, some people have said like, oh, the, the opening made me think it was goosebumps and then it wasn't goosebumps. And I don't know if I like that. And I don't know what to say to those people other than that was sort of an intentional thing. And, and that maybe um, the tone and the style of horror doesn't have to be so specifically locked into one thing. And it could be an ever evolving uh, sort of process. The film is filled with curiosity. And I think that that's, re that's uh, reflective of you as a filmmaker, that notion of curiosity. You have the, from the boy in the beginning to the different characters and the different vignettes that we see. There's that mis mysteriousness, that curiosity of, of what's going on with that other person. What is the intention of that other person? Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's that's very astute and probably is, is a direct reflection of just uh, who I am um, as a filmmaker, I guess. I, I've been told that I have the brain of a 13-year-old a child in an adult man's body. So uh, I guess I guess I'm, I'm constantly making horror for adult children. What would you like an audience to go away with after they see the Mortuary Collection? In general, I would just like to bring uh, some awareness back to the anthology format and, and the the potential power of, of short form horror stories as a, as a very real real place to um, to find entertainment. I feel like um, the idea of the short being some kind of stepping stone is sad. I think that there's uh, as many of the most incredible authors ever uh, can can sort of attest. Um, the short form is very specific and uh, and, and wonderful art and. Um, and horror in particular thrives in these sort of smaller sort of uh, one-off stories. I think this is a, one of the problems with modern horror movies is that you see these films that have like a, a really great hook, a high concept idea. They don't really know how to fill 80 minutes. So they, they the trailer looks great, but then they sort of, they all kind of meander and, and lose steam or they, or they try to like go a, like too big at the end to try to like compensate. And you're like, that would be such an amazing short story that would like leave me thinking for weeks. So if this movie can sort of help just bring anthologies a bit more into the zeitgeist and, you know, where, you know, this movie probably couldn't exist in a theatrical setting just based on what people know about the format. But um, ideally, if enough of these movies get made, they will, it will popularize this sort of structure. And then someday we can have our, Guillermo del Toro uh, theatrical released anthology movie, which would be the dream. We premiered in October of 2019 and we got picked up by Shudder right away. And they were like, we would like to release it as part of our October lineup, which sounded great to us because that is a good time for a movie like this, especially the Mortuary Collection, which has, isn't technically a Halloween film, but very much has its roots and its heart there. Um, but the plan was that I was going to spend a year just traveling to festivals and, and showing the, the movie around the world and, and meeting other filmmakers and, and do, celebrating the movie that I'd spent seven years making. Um, so, of course, when, when COVID happened and all of that got canceled, uh, it was a double bummer. Um, but it was interesting to have a movie come out during this time uh, and very unique in that I, I got to sort of sit around and see what movies were coming out and and 
beyond all the money and, and, and energy that studios put into marketing things, I got to just see movies pop up and, and what people are responding to and what they weren't responding to um, in a very real way. And, and one of the, the big takeaways that, that I got, at least, was that um, especially nowadays, people are really looking for escapist, uh, fun horror. Um, not necessarily something that's going to drag you through the through the gutter for 80 minutes, but but something that's like a like someone described it as like a cozy blanket you just wrap up around and you watch on a Saturday afternoon, and that's the sort of horror that I hope to continue making. The Mortuary Collection is currently available on VOD, digital, HD, DVD, and Blu-ray. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. Hehehe. <laughs>